This message today comes with a test, okay? No need for you to get nervous about it, except that it is a pass or fail test, and it's based upon one question, and so you need to get it right. And I'm going to read you a very familiar story, one that you most likely know extremely well. It's one that we've talked about here on a Sunday morning several many months ago. And all you're going to have to do is simply fill in one blank, just one blank, but you need to listen very carefully to the story to, you know, to get it right. I'm going to take you back thousands of years with a man named David, and we're going to read about the infamous mistake that he made. You already know where I'm going. And if you listen carefully, you're going to hear the answer to the question in the story as I read. How many like to get questions right? How many? Come on. All right, you be listen very carefully. We're going to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm not really sure exactly why. I know I seem to be camped out these days in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, but the Lord is honestly speaking to me through these chapters, and it is enriching my soul. So listen carefully if you want to get an A on the test as we go through 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read quite a portion of Scripture, about 27 verses, um, and, we, and uh, some comment along the way. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, that's kind of a, a critical part to this story, that we see all of his guys are out fighting the war. And depending upon whose commentary you read. Some say, you know, he, he should have been out there with him, and probably he should have. Normally, he would be there. It's also possible, if you want to cut him some slack, that as king, he might have been attending to some affairs of state that he needed to also be taken care of. But regardless, here's what we know. With David staying behind in Jerusalem, it was key to the setup of what took place in the story. So watch what happens as we go on in to verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest... David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked over, out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. How many can already tell this story is not headed in a good direction? And human nature does not change. This story took place some 3,000 years ago, but the same story could be taking place today because our human nature does not change. Verse 3. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This woman is married. She has a husband, and his name is Uriah. Then David sent messengers to get her. It, you know, I look at that, I realize his thought went from his head to his feet. He took action, all right? He sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after her menstrual period, and she returned home. Verse 5, later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying those words that make any man tremble, I am pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, who was his general. He said, send me Uriah the Hittite, that's the husband. So understand, he's just gotten a married woman pregnant whose husband is one of the soldiers fighting for him. 
Let's remember in the process of all this that it would have been better if David had been where he was really supposed to be. He found himself in a position he should not have been in to start with. How many have seen that situation play out before? If you'd been where you should have been, you wouldn't have gotten in trouble. How many have seen that happen before? I know you have. So what happens now is David is going to come up with a plan. He's in a situation. He's made a mess of things. He's messed up. And he's going to come up with a plan. So Joab, the general, sent him, Uriah, the husband, to David. Verse number seven. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along. Hey, dude, how are things taking place? How's it going out there? And that war, how's, how's, how's the war doing also? You think he really cared about all that? I don't think he cared about it at all. I think he was just trying to get his plan going. And then David said to Uriah, like he was his best buddy, he says, go on home and relax. And David even sent a gift to Uriah after he left the palace. So what we see David doing now is he's really sweetening the pot, as it were, as he's trying to get Uriah to fall for plan A. Verse 9. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night where the guards sleep, at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Verse 10, when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and said, what is the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? You see what he's trying to do here. Verse 11, Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. Come on, man. I can't do that to my brothers. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. How many know that David's got to be feeling like a worm about right now? He should. So plan A didn't work. So now we see the unfolding of plan B as we go through the text. Verse 12. Well, stay here today, David told him. And tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. This is all part of plan B. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. And again, Uriah slept where the king's guards sleep. So plan A was, go be with your wife. Uriah said, can't do that. I'm an Israeli seal, man got commitments. I can't go down to my house. Plan B was get him drunk so he would sleep with his wife, get her pregnant, and they would think that this was their baby. He gets drunk, falls asleep, but never makes it down to the house. But guess what? David's not done. How many know that when you are in sin, you can get extremely creative? <laughs> Let that just trickle over the house today. It's true. When you're in sin, it's amazing how creative you can get. So here comes plan C, and here's what he does. Verse 14. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the general, and gave it to Uriah to deliver. Now, to my knowledge, this is the only place in Scripture where you will find someone is literally has his own death warrant in his hand and he's delivering it to the general. And since 
uh, Uriah had been summoned by the general to go give report to David under plan A. It was reasonable then that then the king would, King David would give some message, a message that should go back to the general. So that's what happens. But he doesn't realize the message he is taking contains his own death warrant. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, and then pull back so that he will be killed. Now David has ordered this man to be assassinated. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers, mission accomplished. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Well, then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed. And right here is David getting the news for the first time, including Uriah the Hittite. Now watch what happens. Verse 25. Well, tell Joab, David says, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one one day and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and surely you will conquer the city as if it were absolutely nothing. His attitude to us could easily be read as, thank God this thing is done and my problems are over. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. She didn't know how. She didn't know why. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. So what we see is plan A did not work. Plan B did not work. Plan C worked. And it seems like now at this point in the story, the husband is dead. I'll marry her. Honeymoon night, she gets pregnant. We have a baby. No one will do the math, and we'll go ahead and begin to say this baby is from our marriage and that is now established, and everything will be just fine. However, there is one more line in this text. It's verse 27b that makes it clear to us that this story is not over. And that line is this, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. How many know when you hear that, the story ain't over? So here's your test question today, Bethesda. You ready for it? I want to ask you, and I want to see how well you're listening to the story, because the answer is clearly in our story. Here's your fill in the blank, and it goes like this. David did what was right in the sight of the Lord, except in the case of... You don't have to say it out loud. 
David did what was right in the sight of the Lord, except in the case of, some of you I heard you say Bathsheba, some would say in the case of the adultery, except in the case where he slept with that other guy's wife. Well, let me take you to one other passage of Scripture with the correct answer. Because the Bible says in 1 Kings 15.5, and this is what will get your attention, 1 Kings 15.5, for David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life except in the case of, survey says, how many got it right? And you're so proud of yourselves, aren't you? except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. And let me be clear, survey doesn't say, God says that, all right? When I came across this, it struck me, this, Uriah, it was Bathsheba with whom he committed adultery. The sin was with Bathsheba. Why, why wouldn't her name be there, except in the case of Bathsheba? So you, we read this passage in 1 Kings, and we have to understand this is God saying, no, David, you did everything right except with Uriah. So a crazy mind like mine starts to think this way. Was God grading sin? Was he giving different weights or, or value to different sins? Maybe God is saying that murder is worse than adultery. We certainly try to categorize sin in our day and time. We try to rename it. But let me tell you something. You can take a bottle of poison and you can put whatever name you want to put on it, but it's still poison. We don't even call it adultery anymore. We call it an affair to sort of soften the blow. In God's eyes, it's adultery. You can change the name on the bottle, but what's in the bottle is the thing that's going to affect you. I kept wondering, why, why Uriah instead of Bathsheba? There's no way God was grading sin because in God's eyes, sin is sin. In fact, if there's anything that we know from Scripture God hates most, it would be pride. He hates pride in us. But if I had been writing 1 Kings, it probably would have said this. David did everything right. He was a man after God's own heart. Did everything right, except in the case of Bathsheba. So why? The question for us is, why did God put in the name Uriah? And it seems so completely deliberate because God knew exactly what he was doing. Follow me here. Why Uriah and not Bathsheba is in that blank? I think God was trying to tell us something. And I can tell you for sure God was trying to tell Dan Smith something. And this is the message for us today. It's a very simple message. It's not encumbered with lots of points. It's a very, very simple message. So don't miss it. I think Uriah's name is in that first Kings verse to let us see that David was trying to find a way to fix his mistakes without God being in the midst of it. And that's a problem with God. What Uriah was, was David's plans to fix his life without God. I blew it, I made a mistake. Let me try to fix this stuff, the, the, my problem with all this Uriah plans that I have. If I can get Uriah out of the picture, my situation will be okay. It was David trying to put his life back together to, no, to normal, excluding God from his life. It was David with his own ingenuity instead of trusting God's way. It was David wanting to fix the situation, but God was wanting to fix David. When God comes in to fix a situation, 
but he doesn't fix you, nothing gets fixed. You want me to find something else here to preach today? Because what we tend to think is, as we look at our problem, we look at our situation, whatever it is, you know, if I just had more money, more money would just, it would, it would fix, every, all of our problems would go away if I, just, if I just had more money. And the truth of it is this, God could pour all the money he has on you, and if you're not fixed, you would easily waste every dime of it. Do you know that the statistics will tell you that between 70 to 90% of the people who win the lottery are bankrupt within less than five years? Because they're not fixed. I'm also told that a large percentage of Major League Baseball athletes can be bankrupt at the end of their career or shortly thereafter. This is because when we're not fixed, we tend to adjust our consumption based upon what's available to us. And money does not fix that problem. I was having lunch a couple of weeks ago in another city with a friend. And the two of us, this gentleman I was having lunch with, we have another friend in common that we think very highly of. And I've not seen him in a long time, the third guy that was not with us. So I asked the guy I was having lunch with. We'll call him Joe. That's not his name, but we'll call him that. I said, hey, how's so-and-so doing? I haven't heard from him in a long time. The guy I was having lunch with, he kind of said, oh, he's struggling. Danny's really struggling. I said, really? Is it physical problems? Well, there's some of that. But the big issue is he just, he just cannot survive financially. I said, can't survive financially? It was just a few years ago, not that many at all, that he had this huge windfall of hundreds of thousands of dollars that he received and he made known to all of us. We all were exposed to the situation. We knew what was happening. And it didn't happen once. It happened twice. The friend I was having lunch with kind of dropped his head and he said, Dan, you know how it goes like this. If you can't manage $100, you can't manage a $1 million. You will manage a million the exact same way you manage $100. I know you don't want to hear that, but it's the truth. And our friend that we had in common had apparently made some very, very poor and devastating financial choices, and my heart breaks for him. We may think money will fix our problem, but the real issue is that it can't and it won't fix our problems. It's us that needs to be fixed. It's not we've got to fix the situation. It's God has to fix us. And that applies to whether it's a money situation that you're facing today or a relational situation, whatever it is. I talked to a counselor recently who said, Dan, I was so delighted to have someone walk in my office. I knew none of the details. I, I, I knew nothing about it. But this person walked in and said, yes, I'm in a mess, a relational mess, but I'm here to work on me. And any counselor would value that and say, yes, anybody walks in and says, here's my problem, let me tell you, she's done this to me, he's done this to me, I've got this, 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 this. And any counselor says, great, let's set all that aside, we need to work on you. And let me tell you, whatever your situation is, God is trying to get through to you today. Can I have a real hearty amen? Because it's getting real lonely up here today. No matter how hard you try to fix your situation, no matter how hard you deal with the Uriah in your life, you may get rid of him, but let me tell you something, there's gonna be 10,000 more Uriahs that are gonna mess up your life. And you'll go from plan A to plan B to plan C, you'll go all the way to plan Z, you may come back around to double A, double B, double C, whatever it takes. And the issue for David wasn't Bathsheba and adultery, though that was sin, the issue was God was wanting to get to David. 
It's the words that we hear from our children when they are little and, and you're trying to help them. And how many of you will know this is true? When you're watching them try to grab something or open a bottle or, or unscrew something, and we say, here, let me help you. And what does a four-year-old child say to you? No, I want to do it myself. Isn't that what they say? And we want to say to them, if you'll just let me do it, it'd be so much easier. I'm watching you struggle to open this thing, and you can't, and you won't be able to. I'm your father, and I have a better view of the situation. If you will let me help you in this, we can see something take place. But we, even as adults, unfortunately, still carry that childlike or childish attitude that wants to do it all by ourselves. And here's the truth, folks, and I know you know this is true. You can't fix life without fixing you, and the only one that can fix you is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because once you start putting all your Uriah plans in place, it always goes bad. It always goes bad. Guess what? The credit card statement's gonna show up when you're not at home and somebody else is gonna read it. The finance department where you work is gonna be asking more questions like, where did the petty cash go? Whenever you try to cover up something, God loves you so much that he will not allow it to stay covered up. He'll uncover it, not because he's your enemy, but because he loves you that much. How many are thankful today that God loves you? It's what he does, and that's how he moves in your life, to let you know that you can't become like David. Uriah stands for David trying to find a way to fix his problem without God. Uriah is saying, I messed things up. I just can't fix this thing. So everything's got to work out somehow, and God's going, no, it's not the thing, it's you. And I'm here to say this to you in this simple message. It's you God is going after today, dear church. That's why when it seems like when you're trying to find a way, it looks like God is not moving. He's standing right in the way. When you try to get around him, he's not moving. He's not going anywhere. He's standing right there. You may be trying to work all the way around. He's standing right there. He's not going to move. Why? Because he loves you that much. You've heard me tell this story before, but it bears repeating today. The captain of a ship looked into the darkness of night and saw faint lights coming at him from the distance. Immediately, he told his signalman to send a message. And the message went back to the lights Alter your course 10 degrees south. The message promptly returned, alter your ship 10 degrees north. The captain was angry that his command had been ignored, so he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm the captain. Soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm a seaman, third class. My name is Jones. The captain goes into a rage. So he sends this final angry message, alter your course 10 degrees south, I am a battleship. The reply came back, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am a lighthouse. (laughs) How many know the lighthouse wasn't going anywhere? Can I tell you something? Neither is God. Why? Because he loves you that much. You may be frustrated with him. You may be angry at him today. You may be in such a mess and you were wanting things. And he's standing right there in the way because he loves you that much. You can ask God to alter this or to change that. And God goes, I'm standing right here. And you're going to have to come right to where I am because I'm not moving or going anywhere. 
And instead of asking God to change your circumstances, and some of you have been doing that for months, if not years, God changed this circumstance. God says, let me change you and set you on the right track of where you are supposed to be according to the plan that I have designed for you. That's what God does. Somebody just give the Lord praise for that today. Come on, come on, come on. Here's kind of the raw truth of all this. When you become a Christian, it's not God fixing your situation. It's God fixing you. Some people think when they come to church, I've seen this happen, you have too, but somehow you come to church and we, we sprinkle magic dust on you and you walk out and everything about your situation has changed and you'll step out to your car and you'll hear harps playing and angels singing all the way to the car. And suddenly you're kind to everyone at work and you open up your bills tomorrow morning and everything has been paid. Hallelujah. Or that you leave this place today, ma'am, and you go home to your angry husband who won't come to church with you and he's got lunch all prepared for you, smookums at the table, right, just for you. How many know it does not work like that? What God does is he doesn't quickly change your situation, but he changes you. And you are a changed person when you go back to work. You are a changed person when you go back into that home, when you go back in that difficult situation because he's done something in you because he's the one who puts inside of you something that you didn't have on your own and something that you can't get anywhere else except from God Almighty. God wasn't wanting David to fix his situation. God needed to fix David. Christianity is when God comes into your heart and he fixes you and he starts with forgiveness. He starts with changing you. And people come to church and to the leadership, and essentially what they're saying is, pastors, if you could just fix this problem for us. Here, can we just come into your office and we just fix this situation, fix that. If you could just pay my rent or, or pay the utilities, that will just fix everything. And we're thinking, but if you go back into the situation and you go back into the same thing all over again, if you've not been fixed, guess what? The bills are coming around again next month. Fixing stuff without fixing you really doesn't change anything, dear one. Then really at that point, the church for you just becomes a social service agency. And that's not what the church is called to do and to be. That's not what God is. God goes down deep into the heart and he says, you know what? Your greatest need is that you need to be loved and I'm your father and I love you. When you walk into this place, you're going to know the love of Jesus because God fixes us. What does this story tell us about God? These are some thoughts that came to me just before the service today. I'm pretty clear, we're pretty clear about what it says about David. And we can surmise some things about Bathsheba. There's plenty to read about where she was in the story, her possible motivations, all of that. It is outside of what the Scripture says. We can even draw some conclusions about Uriah. We learn something of him and his character and nature through this story. But what does this tell us about God? It tells us that from the vantage point of heaven, when God looked down upon this entire scenario of David and Bathsheba, he certainly saw the sin of adultery. But the bigger concern was that David did not come running back to him once the sin was committed. And the bigger problem for God was that he was trying to fix the problem himself. That's why that verse in 1 Kings is in there to tell us 
what, how, what God saw as the big problem. And the deeper question in that is this. Why is that such a concern to God? Why would he look at this story and place value where he did? Why would he make that so clear? And the answer to that for me is found in some things that we sang today and is certainly found in the words of an old song that I've known for years and many of you. Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade. In other words, what that song says to us is if all of the resources were there for you, everything was made available to you, you had all the wherewithal to speak and to try to declare the greatness of the love of God. If you had all of that available to you, the song goes on to say, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure. What is this telling us today about God? It says that even in our sin, He wants us. Even in your mistakes, He longs for you. That He values the relationship above everything else. The sin of adultery had to be greatly disappointing to God. But what he made record of, what God made record of, and what got his attention was when David violated his relationship with God by trying to hide his sin and dealing with the matter on his own. God's love is so reaching to you today that he would stop at nothing at getting this message to you. Most of you will recall what took place in just five minutes in New York City on January 15th of 2009. It was the landing of the U.S. Airways Flight 1549 in the Hudson River. How many remember that when that took place? Do you know that when the flight took off from LaGuardia, it was two minutes in the air before a flock of Canadian geese hit the engine and both engines went out? Two minutes. And then Captain Chesley Sullenberger, known as Captain Sully, had three minutes to land the plane. The whole thing took place in just five minutes. Two minutes in the air, wham! The geese hit the engines. Birds knock out the engines, and now a jet is a glider. LaGuardia said, come back to the airport. Captain Sully said, unable. LaGuardia responded back, Go to New Jersey. Can't, was the response. And then Captain Seller responded back. He said, we're going to the Hudson. As the jet, now a glider, turns, they thought they were going to hit the George Washington Bridge. They didn't even know if they were going to clear those giant pillars that are part of the George Washington Bridge structure. And as they're coming in, it had to be just right. Just the exact degree, if not, the plane would snap in half. And the reports came from the passengers later that the captain didn't even talk to them when this was all taking place. He was reading the manual. The only thing they ever heard from the captain was when he, they heard over, they were right over the Hudson, they heard these words, 
brace for impact. Can you imagine being in a plane, knowing that it doesn't seem to be going where it's supposed to be going, and all you hear is brace for impact? But miraculously, that plane landed on the Hudson River, and 155 people all get out, and miraculously, not one person dies. And all this was done in three minutes after the birds hit the plane. And after the fact, Captain Sully said this. He says, I've never done this before. (laughs) He said, I've been flying for years. And if you read his bio, and I did a couple of days ago, read his bio online, you'll see that he was a very seasoned and highly skilled pilot. But he said, I've never done this before. We've never practiced the ditch the plane in the Hudson River maneuver because you never think that's going to happen. He said, for those three minutes, we went through the manual to see a miracle take place. We've never done that before, ever. But just because he had never done it doesn't mean that the miracle didn't take place. No one has ever safely landed a jet on water without casualties. But 155 people make it through that experience and live to tell about it. On that January morning, it happened in the Hudson River in New York City, and it happened by somebody that experienced the miracle, and he never even knew the manual on how to do it, and it took three minutes. I'm going to tell you this. In about three minutes in this place, some of you are about to experience a miracle. You may say, but I don't know the manual. I don't know the rule book. I don't know all the stuff I'm supposed to know. Guess what? You can land right down here. And and we will meet you because Jesus is going to meet you right down here. And he's going to say, all you've got to do is be willing to let Jesus change your life. You say, I've never done that before. It's okay. You've got three minutes to get to the Hudson River. And we've got it right here this morning. And some of you can glide right here to this altar that we're going to open up in about two minutes. We're going to open it up because you have heard the word of the Lord today say to you, he loves you so much that even in your sin, even in the mess up that you have made of your life, even in the wrong choices that have gotten you into a situation that you never dreamed you would be in, never wanted to be in, never thought you would be in. He doesn't want you to run from him today and try to hide it. He doesn't want you to go to other plan A, plan B, plan C. He's saying, come run to me, run to Jesus. It's the safest place that you can go. As I prayed over this service today, I said, Lord, I know there are going to be people who are saying, I am so tired, tired of trying to fix my circumstances, and I'm ready, God, for you to fix me. And that's why we're going to open this altar in about one minute. I want you, God, to fix me. I may not know all the stuff in the manual. None of us do. But I know this. God loves you, and God is able, and he can change you and begin to do something incredible in your life. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me, please? Oh, Jesus. Church, just begin to pray. Something is about to be birthed here this morning. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. I know God wants to do something incredible here today. Oh, Father, this is a miracle moment because there are people in this place who I believe are going to finally say, I'm sick and tired of trying to change my situation. If I could just get this job or just get this situation or move to this place. But God, help us to realize that fixing the situation without fixing us is fruitless and pointless. It does not help. Help us to understand that Christianity is God fixing me no matter what the situation. God helps me. God is with me. He is Emmanuel, God with us, and he makes us an overcomer. My life is is not and does not have to be ruled by situations. 
It is not ruled by trying to win people's love or trying to get people to love us. We already know that God loves us. And today, God, as we've been praying, people are about to make a landing right here at this altar. They don't know all the rules. They don't know all the religious stuff. But this day is going to be the day that a life is changed because of what you're wanting to do. So God, today, we're going to be bold enough to say, I'm going to come to this altar and say, God, fix me. I need you to change me. Work in me. Lord, let there be a miracle landing here this morning. Before we leave here today, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here and you just say, Pastor Dan, I've had so many Uriah situations in my life. So many times I've tried to fix it on my own. So many mess-ups that I've tried to cover up and repair by myself. I've come up with so many plans to fix my life. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to get married to this person. I'm going to move here. I'm going to do that. And everything is falling apart. The wheels are just falling off of my life. Nothing is working. But today I realize no more plans. No more plan A, B, or C. Just like so many people in the, that have been through a recovery program where they say, wherever you go, there you are. I'm going to come to the realization today that the problem is me. And I don't want to devise any more plans. Yeah, there may be problems with other people. There may be other circumstances that are difficult. But I'm not responsible for those. I'm responsible to stand before Almighty God and say, Lord, what is it that you need to do in me? I'm not going to devise any more plans. I'm ready to say, oh, God, fix me today. And if you're here today and you just say, Pastor Dan, I've had a thousand plans, but today I'm asking God to change me. If that's you and you want someone just to pray for you this morning before you walk out of this place, then I'm simply saying this without any fanfare, without any drama, without anything, just get up out of your seat where you are right now and come and meet me and the pastors down at this altar so we can pray for you. Wherever you are, I'll give you plenty of time. If that's you, come right now. I don't care if it's one or a hundred, it doesn't matter. Come from the balcony, you can come from the main floor. Wherever you come from, it doesn't matter. We're going to believe God with you today for your miracle. To say to the person next to you, I'm going in for a landing. Come on, I believe the Lord's going to do something for me today. From this day forward, God's going to bring the change that he's so wanting to do. You know what? The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. That means any day is a good day to come to know Jesus. Any day is a good day for him to fix you. So if we were to fill in the blank for you, we're going to say, it's not Uriah, Lord. It's me. It's me. Today, we're going to have the faith to believe that God can do the miraculous. And he does that when we simply say, Jesus, come in and change me. Come on, we're waiting for you, my friend. We're waiting for you. Just come from where you, wherever you are. The back of the, of the main floor, the balcony, we're waiting for you. Some of our prayer partners need to come and pray for these that are coming. If you would do it right now, please.